You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Patrick Antonetti. Our guests this week, two excellent guests. First up, Jamel Hill, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, the host of the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast for Spotify, creative advisor for Meadowlark Media. Um, In this podcast, um, Jamel discusses the impact of the New York Times story that focused on Rachel Nichols saying Maria Taylor earned the job to host the 2020 NBA Finals coverage because ESPN was feeling pressure on diversity, what she expects uh, Maria Taylor to do when her contract expires uh, before the end of this month, um, whether you can work for management you might not trust, how this chapter impacts uh, people of color, and particularly black women who work at ESPN, what she thinks the future of Rachel Nichols might be, and uh, and and the, the conversation, uh, as it usually is with Jamel, was really insightful and interesting, and, and I appreciate her time. She's followed by my colleague at The Athletic, Fabian Ardaya, and he's had a really interesting couple of years. He covered the Los Angeles Angels up until May. Now he covers the Dodgers. And so he's had a ton of experience dealing with Shohei Otani and the press coverage there. And uh, and I appreciate him coming on. Really interesting just how the Angels have handled Otani, how Otani uh, interacts with uh, the press there. And as Fabian discusses, a lot of Japanese media who deal with Otani on a daily basis. Um, Fabian's thoughts on uh, Stephen A. Smith's comments. And Otani and the conversation that uh, that Smith's comments provoked afterwards, and then uh, a little bit on Mike Trout and just where uh, you know Mike Trout's comfort level uh, doing um, national interviews, marketing himself. Uh, really interesting stuff from Fabian, and I appreciate that. I, like like most sports fans, I'm I'm pretty fascinated by Otani. He's like a once in a lifetime player, and uh, and Fabian's got great insight. So Jamel Hill first, Fabian Ardaya second. Coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, uh, Jamel Hill is a contributing writer for The Atlantic, the host of the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast for Spotify. She's a creative advisor for Meadowlark Media. She's been on this podcast many times, was on my podcast, obviously, when I did it at Sports Illustrated. I always appreciate uh, her time and insight and uh, pleased to be joined by Jamel Hill on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, Jamel, thank you for doing this. I know you talked about this or some of this with Dan Lebertard, so I'm going to hopefully try to push that, uh, that this conversation a little bit further with you on um, on this pod. And like I said last week when I talked to Kavitha and Jay McManus, uh, I'm going to try to listen more, obviously, than uh, opine. Um, just for the... Uh, audience. So they know last week I discussed with Kavitha and Jane the impact in the New York Times story that focused on Rachel Nichols saying Maria Taylor had earned the job to host the 2020 NBA Finals coverage because ESPN was, uh, in quotes, feeling pressure on diversity and the many additional tentacles on that story. Okay, Jamel, as we tape this, um, I'm taping this with you on the eve of game four of the NBA Finals. Maria Taylor's contract expires before the end of this month, July. What do you expect will happen with her? And, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And 
I want people to understand I, I'm saying this without any insider knowledge as to what Maria would do. Her and I have not had a conversation at all. So, you know, I don't want people to take this and, and, and think that this is gospel. But just my opinion is that I, I just would be surprised if she were staying. Um, uh, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, um, I think be, given the, the nature of that story, I mean, it seems that the things have reached an untenable place. And, and while she, certainly everybody will probably think like, uh, of course, that there's always a number that probably any of us have in our mind that even if something bad happens, this number would ease that <laughs> pain a little bit. The financial apology, as, as, which is uh, yeah, which is well used in our business, really any business, but as you know, particularly in TV, but uh, it, it just, the story itself just had a kind of, uh, it felt like a, this is over kind of thing, you know? And, and I, I guess, you know, again, Maria hasn't said anything. She's been nothing but professional, but it just felt like this feels like kind of the end for that relationship with ESPN. Let me give you two, let me give you two scenarios about sort of what could happen Maria Taylor. I mean, you sort of answered the first part, but I'll, I'll ask it directly and, and tell me sort of where you stand in terms of like possibility. So, so, so I see, I see two endings to this and it's not very genius take by me ending one in scenario one, uh, senior management goes to Maria and her representatives and basically says like, what, what will it take to stay? Like we, here's a blank check. And, 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 and what, what, you know, what, and, and a blank slate in terms of assignments, you know, what would it take to get you to stay? And, you know, whatever that number is. And by the way, I know, take this to the bank. I know that Maria Taylor has never asked for Stephen A. Smith money. Like I can report that. I am positive about that. Stephen A. Smith, as I reported, makes 12 million in total compensation. ESPN, quite frankly, has never wanted that number out there because that's the, that would be the ceiling for other talent to, to to negotiate for, but be clear, Maria has not asked for that. I I, I have that good cold. Um, so that's scenario one, Jamel. That she, they basically say, what's it going to take to to make this work? Write down your number. Write down your assignments. So that, that's scenario one. Scenario two, no matter what that number is, no matter what senior management sort of offers to try to you know clean up their fuck up. She ultimately just cannot work for people she can't trust. And it doesn't ultimately matter what the number is. You have to, you have to sort of go to work every day feeling comfortable around your, your employees. So I guess the question I would ask you, like, do you see, like, do you, does that make sense to you for the two scenarios? One, they, you, you basically suck it up, try to get some like lifetime financial security, deal with it for two or three years at ESPN, or you've just reached a point of no return. It doesn't matter what they offer you. You, you just can no longer work with this group. So, uh, yeah, I mean, th that makes total sense because I've been there. And, you know, people, um, as much as I know, they like to write the narrative that I was booted out of ESPN or I was fired, which is especially my favorite. But before I left, I mean, we were talking about uh, opportunities I could have across the network where I could where I would still remain there. And. But to me, the trust had already been broken. And so there was nothing I wanted to do there. And, and granted, uh, across the, the span of 12 years, and I don't know, maybe if it was something there that would have helped me sort of get over the trust issues that I was having uh, with the company. But there wasn't because I had done so much. And so the possibilities that they were offering me, 
uh, just didn't seem like something that I wanted to do. And so, you know, with with that being, you know, said, that's why I floated the idea to them that maybe it's just time we just end our relationship, period, and end it on as good of a note as we can at this point. And once that trust is broken, once you see they don't have your back, it's hard to to unsee that. And so that's where I certainly was. And so I can imagine Maria kind of feeling that way as as well, is that once they've exposed that this is how they'll handle a crisis, you know, that involves you, it's hard to forget how they handled it. And um, then you also have to worry about him and not everybody there, but I, I think there is some level of concern for resentment as in the, if you wind up getting, uh, if you wind up getting the money and they give you the financial ap- apology, what is the cost? What, what are the, the unknown asterisks that comes with that? And you, you know, you would have to be, you would be foolish not to be on guard and not to think that they would then begin to see you as some sort of a, a problem. And because this is, and not to Maria's fault at all, but you know, this is not the first sort of story that's blown up about her. You know, it was the other incident where, um, you know, I, I can't remember all the details where somebody on a call had said something that was completely ridiculous about, um, right. you know, sort of complaints like, like yeah. enough with these complaints kind of stuff. Right. Basically. So then, so then here's another, uh, situation in which you're the center of and whether you're in the right or in the wrong, as you know, ESPN doesn't like to be in the center of attention that way. They don't like these headlines. So then there are people in the company that begin to see you as the problem, even though you didn't do anything. And, you know, I remember when Aaron Andrews was there and after she had been at the center of a few things and granted this is completely different scenario, but just in the whispers in the hallway and in the water cooler, if you will, there were definitely people there who began to see Aaron as the problem. And so if you're Maria, um, you that's something that you have to be concerned about is that suddenly people will think, well, here's somebody that's always drawing a headline and not for the reasons that put the company in the best light. So you do, you would, if you stay there, have to worry about some level of resentment that would be surrounding you. Right. That's well said. And listen, it, it don't take Matlock to, or any detective to, to figure out that that salary is going to get out there if she resigns. Like, you know, I used to, I joked a lot in, uh, uh, Jim Miller is a freaking guest on this podcast. Like to joke a lot, like, uh, "Oh man, boy, those leaks at ESPN really stopped after Adnan Verk's gone." <laughs> right? <laughs> like, we're not amazingly, we're not hearing anything now that Adnan Verk, you know, like uh, master criminal, is gone. I mean, it's a joke. And so, if you're Maria Taylor and her representatives, if you're smart and if you did sign, you just you have to make the presumption that that salary is going to get out. Quite frankly, I think at this point, if you're any ESPN talent who's negotiating with management, like you have to work on the presumption that that salary is getting out. Like, I just, I think you're, you're not being realistic if, uh, if you don't approach that. I mean, I was going to say pretty, I said pretty much every contract I had there, but one, the salary got out. And I I can't say that they were all accurate, but um, even before I started there, my first contract I had, the very first story that was written about me going to ESPN was about me making $200,000 a year, which was not true. And because I was coming from newspapers, like that was quite the headline. And right, yeah, a lot of newspaper people will be like, holy shit, what the hell? 200 right, grand. 200 grand. But every salary, except for when I um, 
went to TV full time. Like it was always a report. And I was just like, I don't know where this comes from, but it's a reality you have to live with. Yes. Here is what you told the Los Angeles Times. Um, this isn't a Rachel versus Maria story. This is a story about why they don't. Well, I'm sorry. This is a story about why they didn't value Maria enough to allow her to take full ownership of the job. ESPN collects black faces, but it seems like that when those black faces become black voices, it's a problem. Uh, it's pretty poignant words, Jamel. And I, I wanted to ask you, um, even though you're removed from there, you worked there a long time. How do you think this chapter impacts people of color working at ESPN and particularly um, black women in front of and behind the camera at ESPN? We, I mean, I think that all the, at least certainly some of the black women that I talked to, both that had recently left, um, some that are thinking of leaving and some that are there, um, those conversations were all pretty, very similar where they were just feeling, uh, it's not even about being underappreciated because that, that makes it sound like that's an ego thing. But there are talent and behind the scenes women that I know that have been there for a while who uh, are in jobs and see and see other people who maybe started at similar positions or um, even beneath them who get elevated past them. You know, they, they kind of, it's, it's, it's something that I've said just about black women in this country, because we, we often go through these periods where black women are celebrated and, um, you know, you get all the yes girl and black girl magic, but we're treated like the mules of this country that they're to do the hard labor. But when it comes to actually empowering and amplifying us, then that part of the movement is missing. And it's very similar and and not again, not everybody's experience is the same at, at ESPN. So I am painting with a, a little bit of a broad brush, but there's that feeling there is that, oh, okay. So when they want to show people the pretty team picture and say that, hey, we're here, we're putting, you know, we, we've put the, these black women in this particular position and, you know, they want to sort of show everybody off, then everything's all good. But when you know, some black women in the company start asking for real power and to really be amplified, then it's a problem. And then they have to worry about hitting a ceiling or, you know, hitting barriers. And so I, I it's, it's, it was a problem that existed well before Maria and, um, and Rachel Nichols. Uh, it was certainly prevalent when I was there where there was a lot of just black people in general, feeling that way in the in the company, not everybody, but certainly I think enough to where it was something that they should have paid attention to. And so they just go through these spurts of, of real inconsistency. They care one minute, then they don't care anymore. It's like they care when it's convenient or they care when something happens. And that was something I talked about when I was on with Amin on Levitar's podcast is that they're very reactionary. And they never get out in front of a lot of things because they won't address the root causes on the problem. If you're only addressing the problem when there is a problem, then you don't get it. And th I see a lot of that and have seen a lot of that at ESPN. Yeah, um, it's a very, very reactive company uh, in, in, in many ways. And a lot of times that ends up biting them. Um, let me uh, let me read uh verbatim something Rachel Nichols said on that recording. I wish Maria Taylor all the success in the world. She covers football. She covers basketball. If you need to give her more things to do because you are feeling pressure about your crappy longtime record on diversity, which by the way, I know personally from the female side of it, like go for it. Just find it somewhere else. You're not going to find it from me or taking my thing away. 
Uh, that's an indefensible comment, just ugly, privileged stuff. Uh, not to mention, perhaps the most important thing, it just false on face. Marie Taylor's obvious talent as a, a broadcaster. I mean, you know, among the most talented broadcasters that work in the industry. So this isn't a diversity hire. It's, it's you know, if you watch Maria Taylor ever, you, you sort of see it's on merit. Rachel Nichols um, has earned a lot of equity in the NBA prior to this. Um, she's done some great work in the NBA. Um, and I think now um, she certainly lost some of that equity to a lot of people. At the same time, Jamel, let's be realistic. She has major supporters in the NBA, including Adam Silver, who is very public uh, about her. She has a lot of respected people who stand up for her. And again, she's done excellent work. She's a terrific reporter. You can't take any of that away from her. My analysis would be that she will remain in broadcasting, either in some kind of NBA capacity or sort of makes it work with ESPN. Um, there's also a thought that maybe ESPN, because they want to sort of just clean this up, buys her out if she's willing to do that. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. Not to mention there's some legal issues there. Maybe Rachel Nichols decides to pursue legal action about being, uh, you know, about being taped or, or at least the tape being pushed around. Do you have any sense as to how you think, we talked about Maria, how you think it's going to play out for Rachel Nichols at ESPN? Well, let me first say, um, just to address her comment is that you're right. It, it is indefensible, but, um, and I, I think that the more hurtful part, especially Rachel is always somebody who has positioned herself as a champion of women um, and as a champion of, of women of color. That's the way she has tried to position herself. Um, and I, to reduce Maria to just basically being in a, you know, an affirmative action, you know, cause was that was obviously the very hurtful part part. However, that being said, and, and Richard, you know this, when they put things in your contract and they don't adhere to them, they are asking for a fight. And 100 percent. Any, yep. Anybody in that position would be biting management's head off if they I know, you know, listen, they put something in my contract and they don't want to fulfill it. And especially uh, because here's the thing is that even though, as you said, we know that the real reason Maria's in this position is because she's talented. She's bright. She's smart. She's put in the time. Um, she's really good, but I could very easily see a scenario where somebody in talking to Rachel positioned it as we have to do this because the mood in this country, um, you know, Maria has been a strong voice. It just would look bad if we did not have this black woman who has been hosting, you know, splitting the hosting duties with you. If we didn't have her at the finals, that would look bad. I could easily envision and see this happening because there have been things said to me at ESPN where I'm just like, wow, they really said that out loud. You know, it, it's it, it is. And you've heard it, since this situation uh, came to light. A lot of or some former ESPN people talking about things that were said to them. You know, Mike Hill saying that somebody told him he was too ghetto. And I remember yeah. when Mike told, told me he, he told me that on my podcast. I couldn't I, I a lo, me seven years ago. I couldn't. They said we don't need another. I think I'm paraphrasing Mike here, but it was something like we already have one Stuart Scott. Right. Exactly. And I remember you know, when Mike told me that story, I remember exactly where we were and he was really understandably up, up, upset about it. And so there is just, you know, it just kind of 
like dredged up some, you know, kind of, uh, you know, memories for me, not good ones. It's like when they told me and Mike that basically the reason that the, you know, the six was failing is because it was too black and they didn't use the word too black, but they, they certainly showed us a pretty little chart and showed us all, all the white viewers that were leaving uh, the, the show in droves. And I was like, y'all really sitting up here telling us it's too black. And then based off what they wanted us to do to remedy that it was just like, wow, this is your solution to that. And keep in mind, as you know, the six have been losing viewers for years. It really wasn't a black or white thing, but that was sort of the way that they positioned it to us. And then they wanted us to start adding somebody like Will Kane to the show. Not even kidding on that. But that's <laughs> like as, as a regular commentator, I was like, wow. So the idea that somebody would be that tone deaf and be that loose and say something like that to Maria, easily believable for me. So, or to Rachel, excuse me, easily believable for me. So um, there's, there's that part of it. But looking at, you know, sort of Rachel's future, I think a lot of it just depends on how the league receives her as well, is that, you know, as you said, she's a reporter who has a lot of credibility in the NBA, a lot of credibility with Adam Silver, but most importantly, it's like, how are the players reacting to this? Because And that I don't have a sense of. And, uh, you know, understand that, the, you know, the headline and they see her comments and it looks so bad and they're thinking – especially in this moment that we're in and you see how much they've been using their voices, particularly in the last year, this may be something that some of them just don't want to be associated with. And they're just like, they don't want to, they may not know Maria or Rachel, or they may know one of them or both of them, whatever, but they don't want to look like they're picking a side. And so I think that to me will determine how the rest of her time at ESPN, however long that lasts, you know, goes because she's been very deeply entrenched in the NBA. And so if she's not, if, if those same relationships aren't there anymore, then, then what happens? Yeah. Yeah. That's where you hope. I think if you're hurt, obviously that your relationships sort of can carry you through the other thing that you hit on, um, because there's multiple issues here. Um, and hopefully you sure try to use nuance, but like one of the issues that you hit on is it, this is a management fuck up of the highest order because you, 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 you know, this, you can't promise two people the same thing. There's, there are, is only sometimes, um, one job and it, it is management's job, whether that's the senior management level, the Jimmy Pitaro level, or the coordinating producer of NBA coverage level to sort of delineate this and have talent sort of knowing like, you know, what they're supposed to do and what their specific jobs are. And it's their job to make it work yeah. with, with the talent. Like, it's not like people can sort of be ticked off at Maria Taylor or, or Rachel Nichols and, and, and say it's a Rachel versus Maria story. That's really, that's bullshit. That's not really sort of looking at the issue on how it is. This is a management issue. Like you, you are, what is your job? Your job is to make the parts fit, right? Like you are paid money so that the on-air talent can perform to the best of their abilities and that the on-air talent knows what they're doing. So they, I I mean, again, I've written about ESPN mismanagement for a long time, but I got to be honest, like this fuck up just like blows me away that they didn't figure the problem out until it showed up on the homepage of the New York Times. Yeah, and and I've that's why I, I have squarely kind of put 
this on them is that you know you you're you're right is that you can't i i know some people have framed this as a you can't have um that this is on management because you they put two women in a position to compete for the same thing they never had to do that and you know like them even feeling like this was something that that could work and and that's why i said that about they didn't give maria full ownership from the beginning because if you really wanted Rachel to be the host of NBA Countdown, then you should have made her the host. If you really wanted Maria, then you should have made her the the, the, the host. The, and the just ho- say, Rachel, your your yes. job is to jump and exactly. like enjoy. You got a great NBA exactly. show. That's that's your job. Correct. And it seemed like they somebody couldn't have a t- tough conversation. I don't know w- with which one it was, but somebody couldn't. And so once they decided to be more passive about handling it, it put everybody in a, in a bad spot. And as you know, that there have been, you you know, having covered ESPN for years, I mean, you know, that uh, there has been so many fights over real estate that it's, <laughs> you know, that, that is, that is kind of baked into the DNA of the, of the company. It's like, you have a lot of people there really talented, um, you know, the best in the business and everybody wants their thing. And so um, when you put people in that position as managers, you have to be able to have those tough conversations. And it seems like nobody was willing to do that. And now they have just a massive eruption. And it's a huge, I think, failure of, of leadership. That's not how you lead people. Yeah. I, by the way, I, I'm never proclaiming that I, that I'd be even good at this if I was interested. But there's not a day that goes by where I'm not happy that like I never really wanted to be on television. I <laughs> never had like any like goal to host Sports Center or something like that because like it really like the one thing that from all of this that if you were listening to both uh, Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor on this is like that that place really is a snake pit in many many ways in terms of. Uh, clawing for your own sort of little piece of territory or real estate. But I totally agree with you. Like the the way to make things less of a snake pit is to have management who has direct conversations and sometimes tough conversations with talent to say like, you know, this is, this, this is what we're doing and, and this is where we want you. And, you know, we think you're paid and compensated fairly for this. And, and that's that. I mean, we're all talking about, you know, lottery ticket jobs anyway. Right. I mean, everybody's in the 99th percentile. Yeah. I mean, but it it also sometimes the way you do things, not sometimes the way you do things matters. And I remember when we got um, the six o'clock sports center, the first thing that I did was I sent Lindsay Zarniak a, a long email and I wanted her to know we never came for her job. And it's true. We did not. They. Uh, you know, we weren't even thinking about hosting the six o'clock sports center. They came to us and, because they felt like it would be a good fit. And because of the direction that the sports centers were going, especially after the success of Scott Van Pelt. And, you know, um, I, I wanted her to understand that, like, I, I was never trying to neither one of us, me or Mike, um, we were never uh, strategizing, you know, plotting on on your job. This was a decision that they made. And, yeah, I, I don't I don't want to share the details of how they told her, but 
you know, uh, based off a conversation her her and I had, because uh, after I sent her the email, I didn't hear from her. And so I was thinking like, oh, my God, Lindsay Zarniak probably hates me. And granted, I know, look, we're all professionals. We're all grown. Like, I didn't, oh, I wasn't apologizing for having the job, but just wanted her to know that, like, this was something that just kind of happened. And because I know how people are in there. And I know that people do plot on your job. And behind closed doors, they they angle for the same things that you've already been given. That is a part of the, the, uh, the ESPN culture. But I finally ran into her. Um, Mike and I were both together. We ran into her in the hallway at ESPN and she apologized for not emailing me back um, and just said like, oh, no, I knew it wasn't you guys. And she went through her own experience. And and let's just say there are some parts of that of that transition from uh, her sports center to, to us taking over the six that were not handled well. And so it is unfortunately a common theme in there is that despite the fact that they, some people in there have these long fancy titles, they don't exactly know how to have these tough conversations with talent or for that matter, lead. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Here's the last one for you, Jamil. Uh, and I, I mean, I asked this with a smile on my face, but I do want your your uh, your reflection on this. Like, do you ever now? I, I would ask the same of Mike too. Do you ever like re- sort of feel like Andy Dufresne and uh, and Ellis Redding, basically in Zuataneo, sitting on the boat, like like looking back and you know, and, and sort of just reflecting on like you escaped from Shawshank. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to deal with any of this nonsense. Obviously, you know, you had a high profile career there. You were paid well, but like. There has to be a party that's like, man, like I am happy that like I do not have to deal with any more of this nonsense. Well, uh, yeah, it's funny. And as you know, Richard, from following me on social media is that <laughs> so when when, uh, you know, friends of mine that I know when they have left ESPN recently, I post a Shawshank meme, <laughs> you know, of, of Andy on the boat or sanding the boat in, in Mexico. And and by the way, I've actually been to Zawantaneo. It's beautiful. Um, wow. Yeah, nice. I have. I've, I've actually been there. And so. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's sort of tongue in cheek and obviously a joke, because as you said, like, I, you know, I hope people don't get this from not just this conversation, but anytime I've asked, been asked about ESPN, I am not bitter or angry at ESPN. I mean, I had a I had a largely wonderful 12 years there. We had some bumps. And at the end, yes, it was rocky. And um you know, the relationship we had built over the years uh, became frayed a little bit. But I was recently there, um, not at ESPN, but at Seaport because I presented the Atlanta Dream with the um, Sports Humanitarian Team of the Year Award. And, um, you know, seeing everybody from ESPN, it, it was a really joyous and happy feeling because um, I I built a lot of relationships in there. And there's a lot of people there that, that I respect still. Um, and a lot of people who were invested in my career and in my success. Um, but yet there are things that they could do better. 
letter and everything that I've said publicly were things I said behind closed doors to them. So this would be no no surprise like hearing this from me uh, because I was always very adamant about how they treated people of color and especially um, with some of the people there, uh, you know, black people in particular who would come to me and tell me these stories and me as somebody who was in a position to have some influence and to uh, get the ear of somebody with a title. I wanted them to know what was going on and hopefully be a part of a solution to change it. So this is not even me talking out of school. They, they know what it was. And so I say all that to say is that when our relationship ended and that chapter of my life ended, it was just time. And I, even with the stuff, you know, I don't look back at ESPN when whenever these situations, you know, bubble up of controversy or, you know, even this recent thing with Stephen A. Smith and say, ha ha, look at that. I'm so glad I escaped that uh, <laughs> that burning building or whatever. No, it's not like that because I still have a lot of friends there and I want to see them succeed. And my only um, the only reason or one of the reasons I talk about you know, things so openly is because I want them to be better. So there's a there's a certain amount of love I'm going to always have a ESPN for ESPN because it changed my life. Um, so, no, I, I don't I don't look at it like I'm glad I'm I, I'm glad I'm not there because it was time for me to move on. And this next chapter or this current chapter in my life is so amazing that you know, frankly, I'm only I'm happy I'm not there for those reasons, because what I'm doing right now is it more fits in the DNA of who I am. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I think with all the things happening in the world right now, I'm happy I no longer have to navigate what to say, what not to say, navigate those kind of trickier waters. So I'm happy from that standpoint. But I don't root for ESPN's demise at all. What is uh, as we go here? What's what's the latest on the Unbothered Network? Uh, your uh, your Spotify uh, podcast network where you're um, you're aiming to elevate the voices and stories of Black women. Well, um, we secured office space, which is like that's something I never thought I would, <laughs> I, would nice. I would be doing. So in a cool district here in LA, so uh, we're just building this thing brick by brick. Um, uh, Christina Tapper, um, she is the uh, the the head of content for the network. Somebody I respected for a, a long time. Uh, she uh, worked at Bleacher Report, um, you know, a ton of other places, and just smart, sharp, just just wonderful to work work with. And so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it, this is uh, I jokingly said I was like, this is the most challenging, exhilarating and craziest, maybe dumbest thing I've ever done. Because <laughs> when you're building something up from scratch, it's like, oh, it's just a million fires you sometimes have to put out um, all at once. But the, my partners at Spotify uh, have been a really exceptional in in providing you know support and. Uh, I'm just really excited about some of the content that we that we want to turn out. So um, if it has a chance to be something so dynamic that people have not seen in the in the in the marketplace. So I'm just looking forward to just seeing where this journey takes us. Excellent. Jamel Hill is um, let's give her uh, entire uh, resume as quickly as we can. A contributing writer for The Atlantic, the host of uh, the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast for Spotify, creative advisor for Metal Arc Media, and um, you just got some more information about her uh, upcoming podcast network, which uh, uh, the Unbothered Network, which should be pretty remarkable uh, when they start uh, churning out some content. Jamel, I can't thank you enough uh, for popping on. Um, you always... Uh, 
give me your time and and I and I appreciate that over the years. Continued success and thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, as I said at the top, uh, my next guest is Fabian Ardaya. He covers the Dodgers for The Athletic, my colleague there. But up until the end of May, covered the Los Angeles Angels and Shohei Otani. And that is why he is on this podcast, because I am fascinated by that. And uh, Fabian, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start here, um, just with uh, just to give the audience a little bit of background. When did you start covering the Los Angeles Angels? Uh, I started in May 2018, so it was about a month into rookie, uh, into Shohei Otani's rookie season. Do you have? Uh, do you recall the first time you either interviewed him in either a one-on-one or group scenario? Uh, I think it was it was definitely in a group scenario, uh, but uh, I think it was it was probably after one of his uh, games at the plate, I believe. Yeah, because I think he only had one or two starts before he got hurt initially that year. After I started covering the team. All right, so here's uh, here's where I want to sort of get into like the sort of meat of this because I think people will be interested in this. How, how would you describe his interactions with the media? Can you explain sort of how it works from the Angels' end and? And what kind of access you would get as a beat person for the Angels? Yeah, I mean, it was all very structured. And I think, obviously, there's a lot of media attention that comes with him. There's a whole Japanese contingent that's covering him on a regular basis. So as a means of making things easier and the fact that he he pretty much does something every single day that's worth talking to him about, uh, they sort of try to structure it, uh, especially early on. It was sort of, I mean, obviously, after, after he starts on the mound, because, I mean, that's customary, but... Uh, every once in a while with the hitting accomplishments, it would be after it starts, but it would always be in a group setting. Uh, that's sort of the way that he preferred it, the way that was cleanest for the angels. Uh, so they sort of handled it that way where it was sort of, uh, at times when it was sort of maybe after a hitting accomplishment, it'd be pretty quick after a game. Sometimes it would go a little bit longer, but it would always be sort of in a scrum type fashion or in sort of like the interview room type setting. Uh, they sort of had to like fill up that, interview room especially that rookie season when he was starting on the mound because there was so much media attention when he first came over can you give me a sense of like um of who covered the angels from 2018 to 2021 in addition to like the local papers and the athletic like what was the japanese um uh media contingent i it's still sort of the same i think that it's like it runs very deep uh including like uh rights holders so nhk obviously has rights for uh uh, for angels broadcasts and also like there's i think it's like five or six uh if not more i think it's probably more actually uh japanese reporters who have been covering him basically every single day since he signed with the angels and I, that means off seasons too like they they literally have uprooted their entire lives to basically follow this guy wherever 
Wow. How, what, um, how did the, how did the process work if he was doing either a scrum or like a sit down behind, a uh, a table, uh, would it be Japanese questions first, English questions first? Would it, uh, would it mix and match? How did that work? It would mix and match. I think it was whatever, uh, group was ready faster. Like for example, last night after, or after he came out of the all-star game, they went Japanese media first, uh, cause it was a smaller contingent than the English media, which was just considering all the national media and local reporters who were there for the all-star game, uh, for everyone, let alone just for Japan. Uh, for Shohei Otani and Yusei Kikuchi, who was also in the game. Uh, but yeah, it, it like makes a match. It would be sometimes Japanese media first, sometimes English media first. Uh, just a matter of like what the like what the needs were of each group on that day. Having covered tennis for a long time, um, a lot of times it would there would be. Uh, usually at the, and this sort of happened at the U.S. Open. So usually it would be, you know, English first and you might get a transcript of that uh, English press conference. And then the reporters from that person's country would come in and ask questions in that language. There would be no transcript to that. So and, but the likelihood is um, what the athlete would say um to those reporters probably was more detailed and more interesting. Like for instance, if Roger Federer is talking in Swiss or Swiss German, it, you know, he's going to be more pr- most likely converse. Maybe he's not the best example, but you know what I'm saying? Like if you're talking in your native language, just the, the communication is going to be richer and deeper. When you were covering Otani for the angels, were you able to get any kind of insight into his answering of questions of Japanese reporters versus the English reporters? Yes, uh, at times, yes. Uh, obviously, uh, Grace McNamee, who helped worked with the Dodgers when Hideo Nomo first came over. She got hired uh, with the Angels when Shoyotani came over, uh, and it sort of fulfills like a similar role. Uh, there would be times where she would be able to transcribe some of the Japanese scrums, especially if there wasn't enough time for the Japanese scrum, uh, for an English and a Japanese scrum, and the Japanese scrum just needed to get him for a minute. Uh, she was usually helpful with that. Also, just sometimes the uh, developing relationships with some of the Japanese reporters who would help each other out uh, from time to time, just sort of like, Oh, did he say anything that was all that different from what he told us? Stuff like that. And also like something I noticed very quickly was also like the types of questions that the Japanese media asked him and what we would ask him. Some, like sometimes really varied, like it, they would get really granular a lot with a lot of this sort of stuff. Cause like, I mean, they have to, like, this is a guy that they cover every single day and you're focusing on one guy as opposed to with us, like covering the angels. It's you're covering, spending a lot of attention on Otani and Trout and those guys, but also like you have to like write about what's happening just around the rest of the team and they get to focus on one guy. So that means they can go a little bit more granular and there is definitely an audience for that there. Granular, like as in like, what were you thinking on that 2-2 pitch or like how granular would they get? It would be like, why did you start, like, why did you switch uh, the like the wooden on your bat? And, or like, also, also like, how did you feel about like your pitches today? Like after like a bullpen or like, how, like just sort of like really granular. I get, want to get as many details as possible and really detail oriented. And, and it, obviously like uh, it led to some interesting insights whenever I was able to sort of figure out what he did say. Cause I was, at, I t- sometimes would use that sort of like spin off of, like other ideas and stuff like that too. It was really helpful. That is interesting. How well, what was your relationship with Otani's translator? Uh, Ipe, Ipe is great. Like, I think he, 
he's someone who I think uh, it, very quickly uh, during Otani's rookie season, I think the Angels fan base sort of uh, they sort of took him on as well. Like they, they, they he's very popular among them, and I think uh, he's obviously someone who uh, he's a close friend with Otani in real life. They spend all like so much time together that they're always pretty much seen together. And I mean, he he's great to work with. He grew up in Southern California, but has obviously been with Otani forever. And uh, it's, it's good to have like, even like just like as an intermediary on things where he's just is very helpful. And I think also like the team is sort of taking him on and he's just one of the guys. Did he come over? Like, did he have a role in Japanese baseball prior to coming uh, or maybe he's an Amer- maybe he's uh, U.S. based or U.S. born and and uh, hooked up with Otani here. What's do you know his background at all? He's been with Otani since they were in Japan together. Oh. Uh, they're with the with uh, the fighters, so uh, like they've known each other for a while and they're really close friends. And yeah, and that, it worked out perfectly that for him to sort of come along with them back in Southern California, which is really close to where he grew up. The um. Do you uh, do you have a sense of um, Otani's desire to market himself to the American public? Like, um, d- is he someone who wants to do? Um, I don't even know how to phrase it. Like, you know, national commercials, or is he someone you think like uh, would be interested in doing like a long form sit down with a with an ESPN or a Turner or a Fox? Like, what what kind of impression do you get in terms of his interest? or his team's interest in being, um, mark, mar- you know, marketable, which he obviously is in the United States. I think first off, I think he's already like super marketable in general, just because like, I think he, especially his first few years in Anaheim, like he was making more money off his marketing deals in Japan than he was making like, the league minimum. Uh, but I feel like, uh, obviously I think he, he's very aware of, place that he holds and i know he's humble a lot with his like public comments but i think he has a very keen understanding of just sort of the impact that he has had uh and the impact that he can continue to make and he i think he really enjoys the attention he enjoys he live like thrives off the fan attention and just understanding that i think they're very selective when it comes to like a sit down interview and stuff like that. I think they were starting to open that up actually in 2020, like a couple few weeks before the shutdown, they were going to start opening up a little bit more to more one-on-one type stuff. He did a sit down that last spring with Todd, Verdu- Tom Verducci, which was, I think his first one-on-one uh, since, since coming stateside. And so like doing stuff like that, obviously even going back to his time in Japan, he did 60 minutes, like, and he, he's done, done some, uh, ad campaigns already stateside with like Oakley and Hugo boss. And he's done, he's been a prominent figure in a lot of MLB's marketing. So I, I feel like he understands that. And I think he sort of has taken on a little bit of it. I think obviously there's obviously still more room to grow. I think playing in, in an all-star game where maybe guy, people who don't watch angels games regularly get a chance to actually see what he does in real time. I think that's going to only expand uh, with time. Yeah. And now he's 27. So, you know, it's, uh, there's, I think, feel like as a maturity factor for a 27 year old, um, even in a, a country that's not his own versus 21, I, I have just amazing admiration for the guy to be able to sort of do what he's doing. Um, 
<laughs> in a country that's uh, that he wasn't born in. I mean, it's really remarkable. He's a once-in-a-lifetime player, um, and he's having amazing success. Um, all right, I won't spend too much time on this, but I, I'm just going to ask you this, obviously, uh, because it, it, it's been among the the biggest sort of sports culture stories in the last 48 hours. What'd you make of Stephen A. Smith's comments um, about Otani, and then obviously the the conversation afterward about those comments? I think. I think a lot of it is based on like a lack of understanding of just the role of the interpreter in a way. Uh, I feel like, like a lot of the times it's a comfort thing with athletes. I found that with a lot of Latin American athletes as well. Cause like I'm bilingual, so I'm able to speak to them in Spanish, but like also like there's guys I know that speak very good English, but it's just, just like a comfort level to do so in a public setting where like your comments are on the record and stuff like that. But there are like other times where like, I mean, Shohei Otani, like I've heard like he speaks English, he speaks Spanish too. Like he, his Spanish is, is pretty good as well. But like he, like, I think it was after his rookie of the year, he went up and gave his entire speech entirely in English. So I feel like just to start initially, like with that, it's just like, he, he does speak English. It's just a matter of a comfort level with him comfort level making sure that he's very careful with his words and i think making sure like making sure that those words are extra careful like that's just an extra way of like refining that um and i think obviously just the idea that he can't be a face of baseball uh, uh, just because uh, of I mean, that uh, absurd yeah just he is the yes. face of baseball it's already like it's on fa- the argument is just dumb on face because he is the face yes. of baseball because also, if you're looking at the other guys who are in that conversation, they're all people of color, people who are bi- multilingual. Like it's Fernando Tatis Jr., who is, right. is bilingual. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Jr., who does a translation. Yeah, who uses a Spanish uh, speaking translator to to talk in English. I mean, come on. Yeah, like there, there's, it's just the game is in such a place already. It's it's an international game. I think with how major league baseball wants to market itself as this one baseball campaign anyways, like it wants to sort of be like this, Oh, we are baseball, even though they're not like it, it's sort of, uh, there obviously is a thriving baseball culture in Japan and Korea. And, but like the fact that they have so many talented, young talented players right now, all from around the world, even like during the all-star game, like I think it was the winning pitcher was Otani. The save came from Liam Hendricks, who's from Australia. Yeah, right. And the MVP was Vlad Guerrero Jr., who was born in Canada, is Dominican. So, like, it's just, like, I feel like, if anything, it helps the sport to be able to have so many young and marketable athletes from around the world. And Otani has taken these marketing opportunities. Obviously, he's grown as the season's gone along because he's performed so well. But, like, at least from my experience, he's converted a lot of non-baseball fans who just want to watch Otani because just because what he does on his face is something that's just hasn't been seen. Yeah. And I'll note again, Stephen A. Smith uh, did apologize. Seemed like a genuine apology, which, which is appreciated. The, the reality is just put yourself in the similar situation. If you were going to Japan or, or Russia or wherever, uh, France, and you were, you know, and, and, the, and, and people were interested in what you had to say, and we're literally chronicling what you had to say. Would you try to answer those questions in that language if you were not super facile with that language? Or would you use a translator to help you express your viewpoints as best as possible in those countries? I mean, just it's sometimes amazing that 
people just don't sort of step back and sort of think about like the um what how remarkable it is for Otani to um to sort of just even navigate this world that 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 is not a world that he he grew up in. And so um you know, the good news is I think it'll pass uh and hopefully it maybe some people will I don't know, at least sort of at least look differently on um on the the this ridiculous sort of old and in many a time stereotypical and racist saw that somehow you got to quote unquote, speak the language of the country you, you currently live in. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think June Lee actually put it really well on first take uh, recently as well. Like he sort of put it as like, you don't really, what he's doing, it, you don't really need any language barrier to comprehend what, what he's doing. And he sort of like, use like BTS as a music sort of example for that. Just cause like their music is, very popular in the United States, even though they don't release any songs in English. I think you sort of see that in Spanish as well with like Bad Bunny, who's like a Latin artist who, if you were listening or in the ballpark at the All-Star game, half the songs were his songs. And it was still very much like part of the culture is very much something that like, it was very well received. And it's very popular because like, like great athletes, great musicians or anything like that, like they're going to be, enjoyed no matter what language it's in just because of how the world is now yeah by the way bad bunny greatest wwe debut ever yes. who is not a wrestler uh th- that guy actually could be a professional wrestler if he actually chose to it's what a what a crazy talent i'm mark chapman welcome to the planet premier league podcast each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, last... Um Last thing for me, given that you covered him for a long time, like, are there, do we have misconceptions nationally of Mike Trout and his desire to be front facing? I mean, it, it's always sort of a story. Well, like, you know, well, Trout, uh, you know, Trout could be the face of baseball, but he doesn't want to do marketing. It's not true. Mike Trout does a lot of national, uh, commercials. I've certainly seen him interviewed. I mean, he, you know, maybe he's not, uh, you know, he's not Deion Sanders or Charles Barkley, but, I mean, he's not hiding under a under under a house. I wonder, just again, you covered the guy every day for three years. What can you sort of clear up about whatever the narrative is on on Trout as a uh, front facing figure? I think, like, I think you put it like where he he understands, like, he's Mike Trout and understands like everything that comes with that. He does marketing, he does uh, commercials, he does ad campaigns, but like. At the end of the day, he's going to be Mike. I think that's something that I've sort of like found out. Like, like he's just he's just going to be Mike Trout, and I feel like he's not going to force himself to be anything that he doesn't like isn't naturally, and he's going to sort of do what he can to spread the sport the way he feels is best. And he does do a lot of stuff to grow the sport, even if he's not necessarily this sort of face that everyone recognizes plastered on every sort of like billboard in the country. Like he's but he's still like doing his part to sort of spread the sport. He's not shying away from any of it. Like, I mean, I sat down, like I talked with him for a half hour for a, like a big blow up story for opening day that the athletic put on the front of their site. Like he's not like hiding from that sort of stuff. Uh, and he understands like 
he understands the responsibility he holds. Like he just, he sort of is a, he is Mike Trout. Uh, I think that's the easiest way to put it. Like he's a simple guy. He has things that he enjoys. He loves baseball. He loves his family. Uh, he loves spreading the game the way he can, but he's not going to like, and he'll even like, go out of his like shell a little bit. Like I know he did like some commercials a couple of years ago that went kind of viral just because he did like dancing for like body armor and stuff like that. But it's not like he's going to do anything super crazy just because like that's just sort of who he is. By the way, covering Otani for a couple of years, now covering the Dodgers. That's a you you are managing navigating your career correct correctly. Great players, beautiful weather. Don't be applying to cover the Ottawa Senators or anything like that. Don't screw this up, Fabian. Yeah, I, I love Southern California too much. I feel like I grew up in Arizona, so like being in a place where like I don't have to be drenched in sweat all the time, but also could still enjoy good summers. Like uh, it's perfect. Yeah, I mean, we're going to Dodger Stadium every day is uh, for the home games. It's just. Uh, you know, in a post-COVID universe is awesome. I mean, like, what a historic franchise to cover. And, uh, you know, unlike New York or Boston, the weather's beautiful there year-round. Uh, Fabian Ardaya covers the Los Angeles Dodgers for The Athletic. Up until May of this year, covered the Angels and Shohei Otani. Check out his work on The Athletic. Obviously, follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's a super talented guy, excellent follow, and has done really great work on uh, on two major stories. Uh in not just baseball, but I feel like uh, um, that that crosses over. Obviously, Otani is a major, major sports star now in the States, and the Dodgers will always be a historic and national team, including the defending champions. Fabi, thanks so much for uh, giving me a little bit of time today. Continued success, and uh, thanks for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime. Okay, back in the studio. My thanks to Jamel and Fabian for uh, really their insights and time. Really interesting stuff. I, I enjoyed this week's podcast. If, um, if you like this kind of stuff, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast uh, continues. And can't thank people who have supported this podcast uh, over the last couple of years, The Athletic, uh, when I've been at The Athletic and at Sportsnet, as well as uh, the previous form of this podcast at Sports Illustrated. Um, I've enjoyed doing it, and it really can't exist without people listening. So thank you. As always, thank you to uh, Patrick Antonetti for producing this. If you want to go into the archives, uh, previous podcast, Kavitha Davidson and Jane McManus. We discussed the uh, uh, the New York Times story uh, regarding Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor in that episode. For that, Mike Golick, um, who uh, was incredibly honest about his time at ESPN and leaving, uh, that podcast did crazy good numbers. So thank you for listening to that. And, and thank you to Mike Golick for being just really honest and, uh, and transparent. For that, Michael Kay and John Wertheim both have new books out. Uh, check those out and then before that ESPN's Ian Dark who uh, called the Euro Championships and, and called it uh, uh, not surprisingly as, uh, as well as he always does so check out the archives there should be things for you there that you enjoy thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support as I said thank you to Patrick uh, for his work thank you of course to the audience and we will see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast